0: You know, when you do your goal section, it's so tempting to just be—I just want to lose weight, right? That's my goal. I just want. But the reality is, the real long-term goal is feeling good and being there for my kids, and that's the goal. So, you know, if I—I I don't want to get type two diabetes, I don't want to get heart disease. I want to be able to be here and and help my kids and be around for them and be able to have fun with them. I want to be able to run. You know, it's nice to be able to run at the park with them and not feel tired and exhausted in the afternoon. And we can go do stuff in the afternoon, I have energy, and that's really exciting and that's the good stuff. I mean that's the really important stuff. The weight kinda of is just kind of secondary now for me where it's it's great and I'm happy that it's happening and you know my doctor's happy that's happening. But you know the it's secondary to the big stuff.
1: I'm super excited to announce the release of our new PCOS management app,
0: Ovi. As someone who has PCOS, I saw
1: firsthand how much hyper-personalized tweaks to my lifestyle had a dramatic impact on solving my PCOS symptoms. As a registered nutritionist and exercise scientist, I saw the same effect for many of my patients. But I also saw that only seeing me once a month or even every few weeks just didn't work for most people. Changing what we eat, how we move, and sometimes the very essence of who we are, like being a perfectionist, is really tricky. And in order to see real change, we need constant support and reinforcement. And we also need tools like recipes, workouts, and cheat sheets right in our pocket. So when we're in the midst of standing in the supermarket aisle, we know what to choose to help support our changes. My PCOS protocol group program was an amazing start in helping to achieve this, but I knew we could do way better. I knew that we could get even more personalized, convenient, and provide an elevated user experience for you. So this is why I created Ovi, to give you your personalized PCOS pathway that's based off your symptoms and your goals right in your pocket, so that you can access it at any time and not just created by me but by an incredible team of nutritionists, psychologists, physiotherapists, exercise physiologists and more. So head over to our website ov.io that's o-v-i-e dot and take the questionnaire. It's completely free and you'll find out what's driving your PCOS or what I formally referred to as your PCOS root cause. I can't wait for you to be part of the OV community. Hello and welcome back to the podcast. I hope, I hope you had an amazing Christmas, if you celebrate Christmas, and wherever you are, you got some time with family and friends. Now I know that, like me, you might be thinking about what you want to achieve in 2024, or what you want your 2024 to look like. Maybe you're feeling like 2023 didn't quite work out the way you planned, or that you're still in the same position as what you were this time last year, and you're looking for something different. It can be so tempting to throw ourselves into super intense lifestyle change programs at this time of year, especially if you're feeling a little bit down that you didn't achieve all that you wanted to last year. And it can be so tempting to just go in with the intensity of, I want to make all these changes. I'm going to do all these things. I'm going to do do boot camp and do this really restrictive diet because I want change and I feel like I need to punish myself in order to get change. But I want you to know, and I hope that by hearing Rachel's story today, that this doesn't have to be true. We can take a much gentler approach to our lifestyle change and still get incredibly good results. Actually better results because they last longer. What you'll hear Rachel talking about today is that she suffered from weight gain that seemed not to line up with her lifestyle at all. She's 39 now and she's been struggling with weight gain plus a lot of other symptoms that she didn't realize were PCOS related like hunger and fatigue since she was a child and definitely since she was a teenager. She's tried many restrictive diets through her time but found that taking a much gentler approach was actually more effective for her. She found that by allowing herself 20% of the time to have those treats and to not exercise and have late nights and not be super restrictive that it actually meant that she had better improvements in her weight loss than following diet strictly 100% of the time so I want you to listen to Rachel's story and if you are being attracted to some really intense changes this year then maybe stop and rethink do I really need to absolutely punish myself and change everything about my lifestyle and while you're listening, I want you to ask yourself these three things. How do I want to feel this time next year? Right, Write some, just brainstorm these down, journal them down. Second question, What? be really realistic. What's going to help me get to that place? Is it some of the more drastic diets that I've tried in the past? Did they really help me long term? Or did they give me a quick fix that wasn't sustained? Or did they actually even work at all? And then thirdly... Instead of thinking about changing everything, what's the one thing you could change tomorrow? Or if you listen to this in the morning, you could even do it today. That's going to help me make a small towards move towards that goal. So enjoy this, and I hope that by the end you have some more clarity about what you can do to get started. Welcome, Rachel. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. It's so lovely to hear you, have you here, especially because I know that you have listened to pretty much the entire catalog of podcasts. So <laughs> it's
0: great <laughs> to, to have you on the on the caller end this time. Yeah, it's so weird to be on the other side of it, but I'm very happy to be here.
1: Oh, I'm great. And so can you take us back to where your PCOS journey started?
0: My symptoms really first started in that sort of preteen. Age, I started gaining weight really rapidly as soon as those hormones started going. And, but the, it wasn't diagnosed until I was actually in high school. A dermatologist saw all of my acne and had tried to treat it for a long time. And finally, I was a senior in high school and he just said, Look, I'm going to ask you about some other symptoms and started asking about periods and things like that and realized pretty quickly. I think that you might have PCOS, we're going to send you to an endocrinologist. And Mm. the testing confirmed everything. It was very clear that that's what was going on. And that's where it started. And what was the acne like for you? Was this just like
1: face acne? Was it kind of just surface or was it quite cystic?
0: No, it was cystic and it was body acne. So a lot of my back, especially thighs, you know just sort of weird places not necessarily I had some on my face but not really that much on my face actually it was mostly everywhere else (laughs) Mm. so it was really and it was really hard to treat we have been trying I tried every topical you know over-the-counter treatment and then with the dermatologist every you know more heavy hitter treatments and nothing was working nothing took it away or made it any better Mm. and what were the other symptoms that he asked you about well, he could see my weight. I mean, they were weighing me. And when I came and I was already at that point, I had gained so much weight that as a senior in high school, I was already, you know, would have been classified as obese at that point. So that was a really clear one, but he mostly asked about periods and that was pretty much it. And then he kind of realized those three things together, the acne, the periods and the weight, he kind of went, yeah, there's a good, there's a good possibility that this is what you have. Yeah. Yeah. And so you said that that like
1: weight gain was quite rapid during those years, was this one that now you, you know, you look back on and you're like, Wow, yes, although I probably put a lot of pressure on myself around that, that was didn't actually line up with the lifestyle that I was leading.
0: I think so. I mean, I had always been a really active person, you know, in sports and school sports and all you know, I I had been active. So it wasn't like I was someone who was lethargic or sedentary or anything. It was just the weight just kept piling on and you know i had a sibling too so we were eating the same type of things cuz we were growing up in the same house and he didn't have those issues and here i was just gaining weight and gaining weight and gaining weight so it didn't make a whole lot of sense and and then you just get really you know defeated and down on yourself and then you start making poor eating choices just cuz you go well forget it i'm <laughs> it's this when i'm doing the right things nothing's happening so what's the point of even trying
1: totally and this was you know this was in the Late eighties, nineties as well. When I'm sure they weren't quite nearly as as nice about it as what I oh, think doctors uh, are now. But yeah, it, it was
0: terrible. They were, they were. It was pretty. We had some pretty brutal doctors' appointments. You know, with my parents there, and just just leaving crying in the car because you feel so bad. Like your entire worth is wrapped up in what size you are, and the fact that you're big makes you different. And in high school, so hard anyway, self esteem wise for most people. And then when you add that on that you're a lot bigger than the rest of your classmates it just made it and, and with the acne too on my my back it just made it horrible you just thought Ugh. it was really hard to have good confidence and self-esteem at that point in my life oh my gosh yes
1: absolutely and and how did that then go for you into your like into your 20s with the with the weight and the acne
0: Well, what was interesting is when I did get that appointment with the endocrinologist after the dermatologist realized what was going on, they quickly diagnosed me and they immediately put me on spironolactone and on birth control. That was the, they said, this is the magic combination. You're going to take these and you're going to work on losing weight. And then we'll see you back here in six months. (laughs) And it, I will say that for the acne, the birth control, that combination of those two medicines really made a huge life difference for me. It, it went away pretty rapidly actually so i was thrilled about that because at least one one big symptom that was plaguing me was off my list the weight too you know as i worked on it i was able to get weight off better than i had before i was on those things so it definitely did help although i never had it easy with the weight. i never it was never an easy thing for me to lose it it was never an easy thing to maintain what i lost I felt, always felt hungry. I mean, whether Mm. I was on a weight loss regimen or not, I just always felt hungry all the time. And I thought that's how everyone else felt. I didn't realize until listening to your podcast that, oh yeah, that's, this is actually not normal to feel like that all the time. You should, when, after you're done eating, you should not feel hungry anymore.
1: But also while it's not normal, it's so common. You know, so many of us have had
0: this symptom with PCOS. It's probably been the biggest life change for me doing this is not being hungry all the time and not Mm -hmm. thinking about food all the time. It's just freed up so much mental space for other things now that I'm not focused on that or or trying to constantly control what I eat because I'm hungry all the time. Now I don't have to think about that all the time because it's not that, that drive and that craving is not there constantly.
1: Yeah. How did that feel? Like, was this, sort of for you, you'd you know wake up in the morning and you'd be immediately hungry or would it that be you had breakfast and then you're immediately hungry after that or was it after lunch? How does this, is this an all day thing?
0: For me, it was a little bit later in the day. So I was not a good breakfast eater. So <laughs> I was like most, many people that you talk to, you know, I would get up and I think, Oh, I don't really need breakfast. You know, I'd either skip it or have something really small and not that great. Like, you know, a piece of toast or something, nothing really substantive that would have fit anything that you recommend. But then usually maybe like mid morning between breakfast and lunch is when those cravings would start. And then once they started the entire rest of the day, until I shut my eyes at night, I'm pretty much hungry. Mm -hmm. (laughs) At least I was before making the changes. And so you're thinking about it all the time because you're thinking, okay, I, I need to I know that I need to control what I'm eating. So I have to, I just have to get used to being hungry all the time, essentially. And that's why I would always rely on whatever program I was on at the time to tell me when to eat, what to eat, how much to eat, because I didn't know even when to stop eating because I wasn't really getting any kind of fullness cue. So if I just ate until I felt full, I would overeat and then I would feel gross. So I I really didn't have a good sense of my body being able to give me reliable signals to help me with that.
1: And because you did a lot of like diets and programs, right, to, to help, to manage, oh, yeah. as you said, to, to give you some boundaries about like what to what you could do. That. Yeah.
0: And I even I mean, at one point I even tried, you know, because the intuitive eating became really big. So I said, OK, well, that sounds great, because I really don't want to count calories anymore because I've been doing this for decades and I'm tired. <laughs> so I tried that. But if your body's not giving you good signals about when you're hungry and when you're full, that is the worst thing you could try, because there is no intuition from your body. You're just guess wildly guessing about what Absolutely. you should be eating. It was oh my terrible. Gosh. It was Even the worst thing I could have it. tried. It's, it's awful. exactly what
1: I've been thinking for such a long time. I love, I, I love the intuitive movement, you know, intuitive eating movement, but that's exactly I do too. <laughs> how I feel is that yes, but there needs to be some assessment of that person first. And their like their especially blood sugar, because as you said, if, that's not working well then they're intuitively they're going to want to eat sugar all the time because like you're like again it's like okay well I wake up I'm not that hungry so intuitively I'm going to have something small and probably carby like a piece of toast or a pop tart or a pastry on the way to work and then I'm intuitively going to want to have like a sweet muffin at you know mid-morning because again that's what I'm now craving so yeah, it's, I think it's great, but we need to put that step in first and then and then we can get to kind of the intuitive eating. And there are a lot of people that don't suffer from this, but those of us that do, we just feel crazy because we're like, okay, well, so why is my body so different that I can't stay away from the vending machine or the, the cafeteria downstairs at work or because I'm constantly craving these foods?
0: Yeah. And it's, it's nice because now I can, I do like the concepts of it. So now I'm able to work some of that in because that is essentially what I'm doing now in a way, because now I am listening to my body about how much and when to eat and when to stop. Because I, I, now that the signals aren't so skewed because the blood sugar is not crazy. I can actually get the benefits of being able to listen to my body more than I ever have been able to before. Yeah, absolutely. What, and
1: what else had you been, because this wasn't the first thing you tried, right? It's probably the 25th thing. (laughs) I mean, intuitive eating definitely wasn't around in the early 90s. No,
0: no, no. Oh my gosh. At that time I was doing, I did some, one of the worst ones went back when I was in high school was probably this diabetic diet that it sounds great because you think, oh, that would probably mesh well with the PCOS the amount of food that was required for you to eat was so little that i was basically eating what a toddler was eating i was starving on that that one was bad i think the 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 next worst one for me in terms of actual results um besides the intuitive eating was probably vegan <laughs> i tried to go vegan for a while that was not that did not mesh well with my symptoms either because you know there was no limit on sugar in that right because that's not really one of the things you're tracking and then when you're taking out like the, the proteins that I was usually eating, that's gone now. And, I'm you know, you're not really getting as much protein, especially if you're just trying to new to being vegan and trying to figure it out. You're mostly eating stuff that is not protein. So it's probably one of the also one of the worst things I could have done. My symptoms are really bad when I was trying that. And I was juicing, too. So can you imagine all the sugar that I was consuming during the day with with all the fruits I was grinding up? It was awful. Yeah. And,
1: I mean, this is the the hard thing because for some people – can work really well right and it's just about understanding what your body's doing and then matching it with the right the right treatment but I can totally imagine that diabetic diet because it's been such a such a a way that medicine has looked at people that develop type 2 diabetes as well you've developed it because you're overweight and therefore you need to lose weight and go really low calorie in order to fix this but it's like hold on hold on hold on hold on we know that insulin promotes weight gain. So isn't this the whole reason why the person has developed the weight gain in the first place is because of the insulin? And I can just think, hopefully now we're like understanding it a bit better and re-looking at that. But I still see so many, so many diets around for type 2 diabetes care, which is so low calorie. and And just, you know, like when you've been eating so low calorie for a while, you're your metabolism starts to shut down a lot of those nice to haves like hair growth and energy and normal ovulation and yeah just that energy vitality the immune system all of those things did you notice any of those things over your like dieting those years that you were dieting in terms of how you like how your body was functioning in those ways
0: Yeah, definitely. I mean, one of the things especially was maybe a weird one, but my nails were terrible. Mm. I mean, the thinnest like break easy, just could not grow nails at all. And I think it's just part of the nutrient thing. I just was so probably so nutrient deficient from not eating enough. And then I was working out all the time, you know, sometimes getting obsessive with that too, where I'd be, you know, three times a day I'm working out and I'm restricting my calories. And well, this doesn't make any sense because I'm chart, you know, I'm, I'm an academic, so I was charting everything, you know, I had my calories in and calories out and I'm going, this is not making any sense because there's this big gulf between the calories in and the calories out, but I am gaining weight. How is that possible? And yes. it was just really frustrating. I mean, I would go to doctors too, and try to show them most of the time they, they weren't even interested in looking at anything I had brought with me. You know, they just kind of go, oh yeah, well, losing weight's hard for everyone. So you just got to keep trying. And. And unfortunately, I
1: was at a a conference two weeks ago and I saw one of my old lecturers from the nutrition department at the university I studied at. And I had a really good chat with her. She's awesome. I love her to bits. And I was telling her, she was asking what we were doing, and I was explaining some of the things about how about PCOS and that a lot of our patients have weight gain troubles and, and that we we use quite a different approach that in terms of actually increasing what they're eating first because a lot come in eating so low calorie and she says how do you know that and I said self-reported and she's like yeah okay so they say they're eating low calorie and I was like no (laughs) she absolutely not I was like this is one thing that I have learned that I did learn you know at nutrition school is that if people are saying that they're eating low calorie and they're not losing weight then they must be they use the term underreporting, which was pretty much saying your patients lying, uh, and that's what we got taught. And I said, I said this is the one of the biggest things that I have learned since coming out of university that I now believe is totally wrong, is that if patients aren't losing weight, it's because they're underreporting. I said, no, it's you know what we are seeing is completely different. The data that we're collecting is showing absolutely the opposite. It is that they're coming in so low calorie that in order to lose weight, we have to reduce that by. A significant amount of you know energy to to get weight loss. There's nothing to take away because if you're eating 1,200 calories, like we can't sustainably get you down to like 800 calories, and for a long enough period to actually lose that weight. And even if we do it, it's it's very often that's not even an doesn't really work to achieve that outcome. And especially people can't maintain that. So why would we do that if it's a going to reduce their quality of life and be not even really work and not be sustainable? Then what's the point? Like we need to find a different way. And that was, but that was quite a, an eye opener to me that that's still the pervasive mindset in, in the, you know, in that realm around weight loss is that, oh, well, they're just lying.
0: And you feel that as a patient. I mean, it's oh, very no. clear when you get the reaction that they don't believe you're doing what you say you're doing. No. They just think, you're saying that you're doing this and, and it's so frustrating, especially when you spend all this time to bring in all this evidence because it it's bothering you and you want someone to help you look at it and figure out what you could be doing differently. Like, do you see something I'm not seeing here? And they won't even look at it. That, so you think, well, they're not looking at it because they don't believe that it's true. They don't believe that I'm actually doing what I say I'm doing. They think I must just be ordering fast food every night and not moving, you know, and that's not the case at all.
1: And you know what the real problem is? They don't know. They don't know, they don't have the answer. And so it's easier for them. And this is again the pervasive thing that's, you know, that's that's drilled into you in health, you know, when you're studying health, whether that's medicine or, or nutrition or dietetics, is that that's kind of, if you don't know, what would be good is just saying, yeah, Rachel, actually, what you're saying here is really interesting. And I can see what you're doing, I can see all the data that you've brought in. I don't know what's going on here can I refer you to someone else who does because I'm not going to be able to give you that answer. But instead it's like, Oh no, well, you, you know, you can't be doing that because what I know to be true is that it's calories in calories out. And if that works, if that's, you know, if your are what's you're saying is, is true, then everything I know is wrong. So that, you know, that's a, that's a tough position to be in when you don't have the answer, But, but we need to get way better at just saying, I don't know. I don't know, but let's find someone else who does and like refer you on to them.
0: Yeah. And I found it really frustrating too, because I was at my appointment that I had for my yearly physical was almost maybe a month after I had started the program last year. And it was so frustrating when I went to that appointment because I had brought, you know, you have a list in the protocol of here's some tests that you might want to get done that we can, you know, check better for like the insulin resistance and some other things. And so I had brought in the list from my part of the program to say I'd like to have these tests done. And there was so much pushback on that. Well, you don't need this and you don't need that. I don't know why you need this one. That's not going to tell us anything. We already do an A1C. You don't need this. And and then when I asked, you know, the weight loss thing too because I said, well, I'm working on this, I'm still struggling with this. You know, the same response that I've always gotten. Well, it's hard for everyone. You just need to move more and eat less. And uh, you just, <laughs> well, could you at least run the test that I'm asking you for then? Mm. I mean, it was so frustrating leaving that appointment because I just didn't understand why, if I'm paying for the test, why it matters that yeah. you don't want to do them. Maybe just do them. And even if we don't get anything out of it, if I want them, maybe there's some benefit to me for knowing those numbers. Absolutely. I, I couldn't get them done. I could only get a very small amount of them done because she just <laughs> refused to run them.
1: Because had anyone
0: before then
1: suggested to you that your insulin could be a problem,
0: never. Not a single doctor has ever once mentioned it. Wow. And this, <laughs> so, has, been,
1: this, is, this has been, you know, because you're late. You know, you started the started the program and when you were 38. And, yeah, I'm 39 and, now, and no
0: one uh, ever, yeah, <laughs> not a and, single, not a single person.
1: And and that was because your A1C has always been normal.
0: Yeah, the A1C is the only thing they test. It's always been normal. So no one's ever questioned it. No one's ever looked into it. And I remember even years ago, I went on Metformin for a short period of time and that was from my prodding that I got on that because I had done the research and said, okay, I think insulin resistance is what's going on here, even though no one will talk to me about it or suggest anything about it. So I would like to try metformin. And I had to push for that at that doctor's appointment to say, look, this is a normal treatment for this. I'd like to try it at least to see if it has a difference. And and it did have a difference on my weight, but oh my gosh, my stomach, (laughs) I could not, I could not handle it. So I had to get off of that pretty rapidly because it just was terrible for my stomach but yeah. I wouldn't have even gotten on that if I hadn't said something because no mm. one was looking at insulin resistance for me at all yeah and
1: it's so crazy because you know you fit all of the symptoms in terms of like that rapid weight gain especially like that's
0: yeah I mean it's
1: insulin to a because <laughs> what how rapid was it like can you remember back to I mean I know this is a long time ago high school for you but like kind of like pounds in a year is do you oh it's a lot
0: I mean I could put on 40 or 50 in a year. Wow. It was it was that fast. I mean, and that's not with, you know, doing nothing. That was mm. still with trying to do things. You could put on 40 pounds in a year and that's so much, so much when you're you're not, you know, giving up and not doing anything. I mean, then maybe you could understand, but yeah, it was really frustrating, and that, so that's why I was always on something because if I wasn't on anything, it would just go up so rapidly that it was it would get out of control. You know, I, I really had to always be on some sort of program to at least try to tamp it down so it didn't get crazy. Mm. Yeah, and that I mean that's an just as you said, you know,
1: you said if you weren't trying, but even if you're not trying, that you know the amount that you actually have to eat. <sighs> to you know you talk to anyone who's any especially guy who's trying to put on like muscle mass like the amount that they actually have to eat in order to do that is phenomenal and so to be able to you know do that without trying and actually actively trying to go in the opposite direction you know really like has to be should be questioned is going right what's going on here and what can we do about it and especially that insulin should be the first thing that insulin and and testosterone because that was obviously the case for you yeah yeah
0: my testosterone was was high
1: testosterone yeah and that was why the spiro and the birth control helped and and helped in controlling that weight a little bit more because at least that uh, testosterone wasn't then further driving that insulin at that time as much as what it was were there any other symptoms that you had during this time that you, you know, how is your, how are your energy levels? Because that's often another thing that happens with insulin resistance is that we just get really tired and we just think it's kind of part of normal
0: life. Yeah. I had that as well, especially the afternoons were really hard where you feel like your eyelids are really heavy. It's just hard to even keep your eyes open so, I, I mean, I could have napped every afternoon if I had the opportunity. And then, of course, your sleep at night is terrible. So, I at night, I'd be so tired all day, and then at night, I would just lie there for hours trying to get to sleep, and then you wake up really exhausted in the morning. But, yeah, the the fatigue was really sometimes really intense for me where you start wondering, is something else going on? I don't mm. I don't think I should be this tired all the time, but I could never put my finger on why I was tired until I you know, started listening to the podcast and and so, Oh, this is really common. Okay. This, this is why there were so many symptoms that I didn't realize were all linked to this, that it's been a revelation for me to realize that all these things that I thought were separate things that were bothering me were all linked. And especially being
1: in academia, then you're like that, that fatigue is, is a real <laughs> problem in the afternoon? It's not like I can just take a nap. <laughs> you have to be like concentrating and because you're trying to read
0: articles and you're going I can't keep my eyes
1: I can't concentrate I can't literally like look at the screen and yeah and I I totally understand what you're saying about you begin to start thinking man what what surely this is not normal like how I can't actually function normally and
0: I I mean now I'm homeschooling my kids too and I had to do you know we had to do pack everything towards the morning (laughs) because I think if I'm exhausted in the afternoon I we're not going to be able to sit there and do math, right? Ooh. We need to do all the stuff that's more, you know, challenging, requires a lot of mental work in the morning so that we can get those things done. Because I know in the afternoon, I'm just going to be exhausted most days. And we need to pick sort of the the low hanging fruit, the easy stuff in the afternoon. That's not quite so challenging to get through.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Because what you were describing before as well was that you had that insulin and stress combination, that lying in bed, tired and wired is a classic sign of high stress hormone cortisol. So what was going on for you there?
0: Well, our youngest has a really rare diagnosis, a life-threatening disease. And so there's been a very high level of stress with that and just worrying about her survival, You know, navigating, learning all these nursing things that I had to do that I, I, I never would have Prepared for because I never thought I would be a nurse. Right. But then you, when you become a caregiver for someone who is dealing with this really serious medical thing, you, you do need to essentially learn how to do at home nursing stuff because it's the only way you can, you know, help them live. And the stress of just worrying about her survival was so, I mean, your child, there's not. there's no stress bigger than that. So the, it was intense. And, and then the sleep was really disrupted too. I was up a lot at night doing different medical things for her. So I wasn't getting a lot of sleep because of that already. But then when I would try to sleep, I would have these awful nightmares that the stress was just bringing out all these terrible nightmares about what could happen. And it made it worse. So the the, the stress and then the lack of sleep, everything just kind of snowballs and gets worse and worse until you're just so physically exhausted that you're kind of wondering how you're able to even stand up in the morning at some point, but you just keep going because you have to keep going.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I can't even imagine what you've been through. That is just the level of trauma that is unparalleled. As you said, I, I don't think there's any greater stress in life than your child being very sick and, and, you know, and there being a big question mark about their survival, which is just horrific how how did you cope with that how you know w- what can you even do in that situation to so many so many of the things that we hear about stress management we talk about stress management is things like meditation and mindfulness and and kind of reducing and removing stress which like can't be done in that situation There's, you you can't take that away because I mean at the moment you're you're waiting on a heart transplant for her right
0: we were so- she she's kind of this miracle kid and managed to Get off of the transplant list, as weird as that wow. sounds. But yeah, she was for a while on the transplant list. And now, and we still, she's still living with her heart that's not normal. So, you know, there's a lot of stress about every time we go into an appointment, there's always that knot in my stomach of, is it going to be okay still? Is something going to change that's, we're going to be back in that really high stress, you know, kind of bubble again? So it's always lingering somewhere there. And there's still, you know, she still has, you know, medical needs that she has even while she's coping with her own heart. But yeah, I mean, at the time, I don't think I was that great at dealing with it. I think it was just more of, you know, that mom instinct of, I am going to do whatever I have to do to help this child survive because I, I love her. And I, I'm just going to do whatever I have to do. I mean, we traveled out of state to find doctors. to have. I, I had her at a, in a different state, Because I just said I I didn't take no for an answer, essentially, when when we heard, oh, yeah, it's probably not going to be good. Well, I'm going to find someone who has a different answer for me. And I just kept fighting for her. But I I think for the stress part, at the time, I wasn't that great at, at dealing with it other than just kind of brute force, forcing myself to just keep going. And I thought, eventually, I'll get to a point where things are a little more stable and calm. And then I can figure out how to deal with this. And then when I got to that stage, I went, all right, I need to think of something for this stress because the nightmares are bad. The lack of sleep is bad. This fatigue is terrible. Some I have meditation's not working. It's just too intense. All I do is sit there and think about all these things that could go wrong. So it wasn't a really good solution for me. I did try it for a while, but it didn't really work. So what I ended up doing is is finding a hobby. And that actually was brilliant and has been the best thing ever for me. So I, I've i always liked crafting. So I said, I think I'm gonna learn how to crochet. And during the pandemic, I decided I was gonna learn how to crochet and I love it. And it's so stress relieving that it's now my thing. That is my stress relieving thing now is finding a little time to myself when I can just sit and you know listen to a podcast. And that's how I got listening to your podcasts too because I was looking for something to listen to while I would crochet and the stress relief from that has been enormous it even lowered my blood pressure just it's it's so zen for me to be able to just focus on a, a repetitive thing and not think about anything else for a little while that really made a huge difference for me is fi- finding a hobby that i could enjoy that was relaxing yeah i think that's such a
1: like underrated form of stress management because you're doing, I find it really good too. And I have a few hobbies, like I like sewing. And it's because you have to be engaged in that mentally and what you're doing that you you have to be so mindful. You don't really have the opportunity to not be thinking about what you're doing. Like it gets a bit more repetitive than you can, but especially if you pair it with listening to a podcast that your mind can't wander so much and, and catastrophize. It has to be a lot more in the moment. And it also, but I think the other thing it gives is a lot of joy. And I don't know, but I, you know, I would wonder if for maybe for some people meditation gives them that kind of like post joy, but I think the success of seeing what you've produced and with the, you know, the joy that that can bring is such a great combination.
0: I agree. I mean, being able to see the finished project and go, oh, I made this, this was just a ball of yarn and look at it. It's, it's just such a good feeling to have that product at the end too, that you got your stress relief but you got something out of it too, because in the end you made a hat or something, you know, it's a really good feeling.
1: Yeah. I think that's such a, such an underrated form of stress management. So you talked about your daughter. We haven't actually talked about fertility because that obviously always comes up with PCOS,
0: but was that ever an issue for you? Surprisingly, no, I was able to get pregnant with both of my daughters. The second one maybe took a little bit longer trying, but even then it was within a year. So it wasn't, You know, an exceptionally long period of time, and I had been on birth control for a long time too. So it's possible that the first several months, my body was kind of trying to adjust back to, you know, not being on that. I think it took maybe eight or nine months with my second one. My first was instantaneous; just got pregnant very easily with my first. So surprisingly, because that is definitely not what I was told by any doctor would be the case. So I I was not expecting to be able to get pregnant at all based on what I was told. So it was. A joyful shock to be able to have my girls without any medical intervention because it's not what I was told I was told that I would likely never get pregnant without medical help so it was really a great surprise
1: yeah and I I loved it we were talking previously and you said my doctor said to me oh you're not on the pill for any kind of contraception you're not going to get pregnant <laughs> anyway yeah and how terrible would that have been, if you'd been gone, okay well I don't need to be on it then
0: I know. Can you imagine, especially since I got pregnant so fast with my first, if I had just gone off of it in my early twenties thinking, oh, it doesn't matter.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like you were obviously on it because it was really helping with the acne as yeah. and helping with the weight, but imagine if that wasn't and you were like, well, why am I on <laughs> it? I might as well just like not bother. So I hope that they're not still saying that because I mean, that I have had a lot of, a lot of patients who, have had a unplanned pregnancy because they had been told that they, you know, weren't going to conceive. So don't even, you know, well not, they didn't say don't bother, but it was like, well, you're not going to get pregnant naturally. Yeah. So they, It's know.
0: like, you don't really need this. Yeah. It yeah, <laughs> doesn't surprise
1: yeah, yeah. me. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, that's especially, especially in the, in the U S where in many States there, there is not another option now if that happens, yeah. um, it's, it's it is scary. Like, yeah. For a lot of people with PCOS to know that, Having PCOS does not make you infertile. Like you're not missing any sexual organs. There is absolutely every possibility that you're going to get pregnant. Like if you know if you're ovulating, which even if you have, I mean, I know your cycles at that time were had been like six months long, but yeah. to get a period, if it is a period, you still have to ovulate, and that means that there's every possible chance that if you have intercourse at the right time, you can conceive. So it's yeah, it's it's just anyone listening, please remember that. PCOS does not make you infertile and whether that's where you were trying or you're not trying, just take precautions. Yeah, hopefully they're that. not
0: saying that to anyone anymore. I, no, I hope I, not, but this wasn't that wasn't. long ago. I mean, it was maybe 15 years ago. So maybe it's yeah. changed. Maybe they're not saying it, but if they are, please don't listen <laughs> because no. it's wrong. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we
1: have the other thing that I was talking to you about before was mood changes, how you, How did you, how did these feel for you? Were these just around your period or were these all the time that you were having these mood changes?
0: It kind of depends. Some of it was maybe like PMS type stuff, but some of it was also just a response to things going on in life. Like I, I definitely think that with everything that happened with my youngest, I was suffering from PTSD and just didn't realize it because I was so busy trying to take care of her that thinking about my own needs or what might've been going on with me was really far down the list for me. So I really think that's maybe what was going on. And then with that Mm. came like, you know, a lot of anxiety because I was, there was so much anxiety about everything related to, you know, I can't mess anything up. If I mess up even one of these medicines that could be devastating for her, if I, you know, if something happens at this appointment and what does that mean? Does that mean that I'm back out of state living in a hospital with her again? What, what, you know, there was so many what ifs in my head that the anxiety, was super high you know some depression with that too of just you know worrying about her all the time that that's hard that's hard for someone to to figure out how to how to cope with that and i don't think i realized how much of an impact it had on me until things were stable enough that i could focus on myself a little bit and had a little bit of space to say all right i don't think i'm at a very good place right here i need to to do something about it
1: yeah absolutely and I mean, I think that anyone that's been through what you've been through would have, you know, a similar kind of PTSD. It's, I don't think that's surprising at all, but did that change though? Because, you know, we haven't really talked about, we've alluded to a few things, but once you kind of made a lot of these changes that we recommend in the program, did that change or was this part and parcel of like the getting through the stage with with your daughter and that it's now kind of the fright and flight mode is is over. It's a bit more sort of in remission, for want of a better word. But yeah, how did that change with actually you are uh, the changes that you were making?
0: So, I think a little bit of it changed just when we got to maybe a more stable place with our health. That there's sort of these peaks every time we have one of these medical appointments or something, I'll have that, yeah. you know, that, that more knots in my stomach feeling come back again when it's those days leading up to it. My sleep is usually bad those days leading up to it just because all these things are going on in my head. But I also think the program really helped massively with mood as well. I mean, even my, you know, my husband noticed and he went, wow, it's, it's so great to see, kind of see you back. He said, I know that sounds weird to say, but, you know, I was just my cheerful self again and not kind of stuck in my head worrying about all these things all the time. I just, I feel like this cloud sort of lifted that I didn't realize had been there for a while. And it was, it's just been such a good feeling to have so much change in that area too, because I didn't go into this anticipating that. That part would really change for me. I really was just hope. I mean, my main hope is that it would help with maybe the weight and some other symptoms, but I really didn't have high hopes that it would help on that part. But it really has helped there too.
1: I wonder if that's connected to the well. It's probably connected to both those drivers for you the the stress and the insulin because if we have that, if we're constantly on this blood sugar roller coaster, we're constantly having the <laughs> you know, 90% of our brain capacity being taken up with what am I going to eat and where am I going to get food next and how am I not going to eat because of, you know, my whole life, my last 20 years of my life have been all around not eating and kind of controlling that, that when we suddenly have that freed up, we're like, oh, wow, like it literally does feel like a cloud's lifted. It does.
0: I mean, I, I feel so good now. I just, (laughs) it's hard to think of how to actually put it into words because it's just such a huge difference from how i felt before and i i think one of the hard things for me with the program at the beginning was accepting the 20% of the 80 20 i was so used to having to be so strict and perfect and overdo the workouts and every, to get any change that at the beginning i went into this like that like i'm just going to do everything perfect all the time i'm not going to use that 20% have a cookie or whatever you know have something i just want because i want it and now once i started letting that part in and saying, all right, I'm I'm actually going to pick some things that I enjoy for that 20% that are just for pure enjoyment. It was kind of life-changing to be honest, as weird as it sounds for something like that small to be life-changing. It was because for for all of my adult life, there's been guilt associated with any time I would have anything like that. And I didn't have to have that anymore. I could literally just enjoy that thing that I had picked as part of my 20% because it was okay. It's part of the program. It's okay. And the fact that I could enjoy it made it so much better than any time I would have had it before when I just would have felt guilty afterwards. And I would have felt horrible because I had a cheeseburger or something, right? But now if, if I think, oh, my 20% this week, I would really like to go to my favorite burger place and get a cheeseburger. That's okay. And I can enjoy it. And I found that actually, you know, the weight loss and everything went more after I started embracing the 20% than before when I was trying to just be perfect all the time. So it has made a big, big difference in my life. That balance. Oh, it makes me,
1: I'm tearing up. It (laughs) makes me so happy to hear that because, you know, like so many people that would be listening to this have, have experienced exactly the same as you, you know, like decades of this restriction and being told that they have to follow these plans perfectly. And if they don't, then it's their fault, their fault, why it's not working for, you know, for weight loss and why they've now gone and put weight back on or why they didn't lose any weight at the start. And that's like almost in, in my experience of a decade working in this space, I would say that that is the 1% of people that I see, the 99% are those that are doing things so diligently. And it's that, the plan has not worked for their physiology, not the other way around. It's not them that's failing. It's the, it's the plan. It's the, it's the medical practitioner, It's the the health professional that's failing them. So I'm, I'm so glad to be able to give a lot more of that freedom back to you. And, and how is that? So, you know, originally it was probably that you were like, okay, well, I'm going to do this. I'm going to, you know, plan out when I'm going to have like my 20% and and the other thing is we really don't want to get into this whole cheat day mindset as well yeah
0: like, no yeah I'm,
1: too because so many people yeah. have been through that kind of
0: oh and I've definitely done that I've had everything. the diets where they give you the one day where you can have whatever you want and then the rest of the week you have to suffer basically <laughs> to so that you can earn that one day where you get whatever you want but that's changed completely too I mean my I know people always use this phrase now that my relationship with food is, but it's true. I mean, it really, it really has changed where uh, the way I think about these things has changed. I don't think about it that way because at first I did have to do that. I did have to go, okay, I'm going to plan for this 20% piece because it was scary to give up that, that control over that bit and say, what's going to happen? What if I, what if I have that? And then I, I just gain weight on this and it doesn't work or my symptoms don't change so I was really nervous about giving up that control, but once I I let myself have the freedom with that, and it's much more spontaneous now about, it's not planned out at the beginning of the week. I don't go at the beginning of the week. Oh, well this week, my 20% is going to be X, Y, and Z. It just sort of, as the week goes on, I think, oh yeah, that sounds great. Let's do that. And that's going to be part of it. And, and I don't even do any really metrics where I'm sitting there anymore going, thinking about how many things I've had this week, it just kind of naturally works out that most of the time I'm picking things that are on plan. And then some of the times we're just doing fun stuff because it's enjoyable. So it's been a a real change in the way that I think about eating and food and my body. And it's, it's changed everything for me. It really has. Yeah.
1: And I think, but I think that's also really helpful for people to hear that that didn't come immediately because that is really common as well for a lot of people to and and a lot of the questions that we get is okay so but but how much is 20% is that like three (laughs) meals or like what is how many you know yeah exactly and it it is hard to start to get into that mind frame of like okay yep well this is you know maybe start by trying to think about three things that you want to have this week and and then it gradually becomes a lot more intuitive as we talked about at the start more kind of that intuitive eating where you then know intuitively sorry how many times can you say intuitive in a, in a <laughs> sentence but you know a bit more about what that looks like for you and you get confidence in that right because you oh, yeah you've also had you know quite a significant weight loss during this last year too haven't you
0: yeah. I've lost 30 pounds. I've lost so many inches, like six inches on my waist another I mean, a six on my hip, another five on my waist, multiple on my arms and legs. <laughs> my whole shape has changed this year too. And it, that's been really exciting too, because I don't ever remember also for that amount of weight loss, seeing such a big change in my shape, mm-hmm. but that's really changed. So I, I think that has a lot to do. I mean, maybe you can fill out on this, but I think it has a lot to do with the insulin part that, that, where the weight's coming off and how it's coming off is different than it has in the past because I'm addressing the root cause now yeah
1: do you mean for you is this belly upper body face like are those the areas that you notice that you'd gain weight
0: yeah, especially like the belly and yeah. the the hips, weight the waist area, like the mom the mom pouch, you know that we all have. Mm-hmm. Especially, I've had two C sections, so of course, you know, I I do have that too, the the shelf from that. But I've seen changes in all those areas, and it's been really exciting to to see my shape change so much and to gain so much confidence. I put so much muscle in my body this year through all the slow weighted workouts, which. I love that. That's been, that's been an interesting change too, because, you know, in the past I'd done so many really high intensity things, the hit workouts and all that stuff, you know, try to make myself like running, even though I hate running, <laughs> it's not my thing, but I love the weight workouts. So this has been great for me. For me, it feels like, wow, I I don't have to do 50 jumping jacks and then burpees and I don't have to do all that really and I can still lose weight and I can feel good. And, and that's been a real big thing for me too, to be able to find things that I enjoy. So for me, it's walking every morning after breakfast and slow weighted workouts during the week. And that's, that's it. I don't, I don't have to do any of that other stuff anymore. And I'm still seeing all these great changes. Yeah. And I
1: think that as we were talking about before with the eating and the 20% is that as these things change and your body changes, you, you gain more confidence and being, okay, I can be a bit more intuitive. And, and also when you start seeing the, that you're feeling now full when you eat and you notice that, right. Whereas previously you weren't getting full at all. It was constantly hunger, constant hunger.
0: Yeah. And that was really noticeable too, especially when I was doing the, you know, the parts that would have been the 20% Mm. because before, if it was a cheat day, thing, it's, I need to get as much of this as I can, right. Because I don't know when I'm going to get to have A burger or fries or pizza, whatever it was that I was having, I don't know when I'm going to get that again. So, if this is my one chance in the month that I'm letting myself have this, then I would end up overeating and I wouldn't have that signal when to stop. But now I noticed that even with that 20%, if we go out, you know, there's still food on my plate. I don't necessarily finish everything. And that's that was a weird thing for me too, because that's not my normal. And it was kind of shocking to go, oh, we're out for our fun meal and I didn't finish it. (laughs) This is weird, but this is my body, but I feel good. I feel full and I'm, I'm good stopping here. And that, that was interesting to have that change too, because that was all new for me to, to have that feeling that I knew I was full and satisfied and could stop eating. I, I just never got the signal before. Mm-hmm. So I would end up just feeling gross after I would have those things because I would inevitably end up eating too much because I wouldn't get that that shutoff signal of my body saying, No, you're you're good now. You can you've had what you need and you're full.
1: Yeah. And also too, you've got, you know, the scarcity mindset of I'm not yeah. gonna get this eat this again. This is, you know, the forbidden fruit. So we better eat as much as we can of the forbidden fruit while it's here because we might not see it again. <laughs>
0: Yeah my body was like feast or famine it was like you're either starving me or you're trying to put in as much as you can because you don't think you're getting it again so there wasn't this nice norm and and sort of stable amount that I was having and now I have much more of that stability in my week because I'm there's not these big extremes of starving or overeating what was what's
1: been challenging for you apart from the the 20% is there anything else that's been challenging for you during the last year in adopting kind of this new lifestyle.
0: Not necessarily challenging, but just maybe some things that I didn't think I would ever do or like, like for the protein shakes is probably one. I went, oh, I got to eat protein shakes. I don't really, you know, I've tried protein bars and protein shakes, but they're always kind of chalky and had that awful, you know, awful protein taste. So I never thought I'd be one of those annoying people. I, I thought they were annoying people before who would bring their little blender with them when they're shaking it. But now I'm that person. So that was a weird change. I think that the, the suggestions that you gave were helpful too with different brands we could try because... And not not only that, but also having the specifics of, oh, you don't have to pick these brands though, because here's the stuff that you can look for on the label to know whether the one you're picking is okay. So it gave me that ability to try different types. So I bought smaller amounts at first of different types until I found one that I thought, okay, the taste of this one I can handle. This isn't that chalky. This is okay. And figuring out too how you can mix in different things so that it does taste good for you. So like the frozen berries or I've done... Again, I can't believe I'm saying this, but I've even done frozen zucchini, which again, I would never have thought I would be one of those people making a protein shake with frozen zucchini in it. But, you know, you can, you just, you figure out what you can put in it that masks the taste so that it doesn't just taste like a zucchini shake. It tastes, you know, like berries or, you know, nut butter. Yeah. Yeah. You can get the flavored protein powder that has the chocolate. I mean, that's been a big change. And also I think getting my, I did have to work a little bit about getting my veggie content up especially dinner I was great because we always had veggies with dinner but it it wasn't something I was doing at breakfast and not so much at lunch either unless I was having a salad or something so having to actively think about okay I need to make sure I have sides around veggie sides around that I can just easily whip up or that are already ready for those Mm. meals and then I don't have to think about it so making you know batch salad a big huge batch salad that then I can just if I don't have an idea for a veggie for lunch I can just take a couple big scoops of that in a bowl and there's my veggies I don't have to worry about it
1: yeah absolutely and how's your sleep now because that obviously wasn't really within your control a lot with getting up with your daughter during the night but in terms of that like being tired and wired at night how's that going now
0: yeah now I don't have to get up with her at night so that part's gone and then the the program did help with that I did try the meditation app that you Suggested that helped me a lot to get to sleep because my big issue was really getting to sleep. Mm. I would just lie down and I'd be tired and so frustrated because it would take me hours sometimes to get to sleep. But that really did help. And, you know, for me, I had to get over the little bit of the the meditation app a little bit woo woo, right? For me. So I had to go, all right, I'm going to really invest in, in trying to not laugh at this, right? Cause that's my natural inclination is to kind of think it's silly or whatever, but it actually worked. I mean, it did work. So I'm really glad I got over that part and tried it because it, and, and now I'm, I don't even have to use the app because now I know how to get my brain sort of to focus so that I can fall asleep without it even. But for a mm. while, I would say probably for the first couple months, I did use the app at night so that I could try to have that, that guided meditation to help me clear my head and get to sleep. But now, now it's helped so much that I can just use that on my own and, and do it.
1: Yeah. Because that must've been huge for you with everything you've been through with your daughter and the PTSD and, and the, you know, your brain getting into that catastrophizing state of what could happen is that as soon as you, are you're exhausted. And as soon as you are lying down your body's going, your your brain is going like a mile a minute thinking about all these things that could happen and probably going back through the day and checking off, did I get the medication right? And all the, all the, those little things and what's going to happen, you know, or what did happen? What could have we done differently? All of those things that our brain likes to think about when we're trying to get to sleep. <laughs>
0: Yeah, it always picks the worst things, inevitably. <laughs> the worst things you could possibly think about are the things that you end up thinking about when you're when you're lying there waiting to fall asleep. So it did does help to really focus out on nothing, essentially. So that you're mm-hmm. not you're not drawn to thinking about stuff that's bothering you. And it helped me a lot. And also I did try, you know, to to do a little less of the, you know, computer type things before bed or phone things, you know maybe crocheting a little bit before i went to bed instead because then i'm i'm doing something relaxing but i'm also not on my electronics so it it's really helping in two ways it's it's giving me something to do so i don't feel like i want to stare at my phone but also something relaxing that already gets me in that zone of of being calm and being ready to wind down at the end of the day
1: yeah that's a great idea and a lot of people find like reading a physical book can be a similar Oh yeah, yeah. I love that too. Uh, I read a
0: lot too. So that that's really good too, depending on what it is. <laughs> you know, I read a lot of true crime, so maybe that's not the best
1: thing. <laughs> oh, especially when you just get so into it and then you're like, oh my God, it's 2am and I'm still reading. I
0: yeah. I got to find out what happens. And it can't
1: be work related, right? Like that's the big thing. Is <laughs> oh
0: yeah. Oh my gosh. Almost for
1: me is like, it, it cannot be, it has to be fiction. Like it can't be nonfiction because I just <laughs> think too much of it's nonfiction. Um, so, so where yeah. t- took two from here for you? Because, I mean, you've ticked off a heap of things. Are any anything that you're still working on?
0: For me, I'm, I mean, I'm still losing weight and in the process of that. So, I mean, I know my doctor still wants me to lose some more, so... They probably always will. So, but I think I'm even thinking about that differently now. I mean, before every program I've been on, I've sort of started it going, okay, I have this goal weight that I want to get to. And then once I get to that goal weight, then I'll be able to enjoy some things I like again. But I don't have to, I don't have to do that and torture myself this time. So there really is no sort of, I've changed my view on this since I started. When I started, I definitely had a, I want to get to X size or X weight or whatever. But now that I see how it's going and how much I can trust my body, it's more about, my body will figure out what its equilibrium is. I don't know what that's going to be. It's still going down in weight now, so I'm not there yet. But I'm hoping that I figure that out over the next year or so that, you know, I I figure out what what's this number that it kind of settles on and it's okay there. And I've also stepped away from the scale a lot. I, I listened to you on that because that was, <laughs> that was a little challenging for me too after all these years, you know, 25 years of obsessing about it to say, all right, I'm not going to check this all the time. I'm going to mostly check in with myself about how I'm feeling and about, you know, how my clothes are fitting and, you know, just my other symptoms basically. And if those things are going well, then I'm doing well. And I don't need to worry about what that says. And that was really huge for me too. So I'm hoping to hang on to that and just keep moving forward and and see where my body takes me. And I'm excited to go up in my next weights for my slow weighted workouts too. That's in my new year is adding in a new set of <laughs> dumbbells that are heavier. So
1: awesome. Yeah. That, I think that's a great goal to focus on like those, what's in my control, which is the the habits I'm forming, the the weights I'm picking for my workouts, you know, what my body's doing in terms of burning body fat, pretty much, you know, like a, a lot out of my control, but that must've been really hard for you to give up that control of the seeing the scale, because especially when you've had such rapid weight gain it can feel like it's spiraling out of control and that even though knowing the weight doesn't necessarily help with that it it feels like there is at least some sort of control that if I'm seeing it go up quickly then I know that oh my gosh I've got to do something about it especially when I'm trusting this new kind of technique of 80 20 and you know that feels all like quite woo woo and a little bit out of my control as well then it's you know, the scale was one thing that I can keep control of and I can make sure that, you know, when I'm eating this 20%, I'm not suddenly gaining 10 kilos because I had a cheeseburger.
0: Yeah. And I'm such a logical, you know, analytical person when it comes to that stuff, that that's why, you know, having that number, something that I can Mm. look at and go, this is my sign of whether I'm doing well. It was hard to let go of that. Definitely. Especially when I started integrating more of the 20%, like we were talking about it, you know, there was that fear at first that what if it bounces up? What if my weight bounces up for a little while? So I actually made the conscious decision that I wasn't going to get on the first several weeks for that. I thought I'm going to give myself several weeks to just really try to embrace this and not look at it. And then, you know, next month I'll get on the scale just to see where I am, but I'll try not to put any emotional weight on that and just say, let's just do a check-in. It's just a check-in. It doesn't mean that you're failing if it goes up a little doesn't mean that you're doing something wrong because if you're still feeling good, then you're still making positive moves. And that's, I think the fact that I've had so much other symptom change has been really helpful with that too, because then I could always look to that and go, but I feel really great right now. So whatever the scale says this, this week or this month, or, you know, whenever I choose to get on, it doesn't all have to be wrapped up in that anymore because there's so many good things that are going well that I can hang my hat on if I am having a you know, a way in where nothing changes or something.
1: Yeah. And I think that's so important because especially when, you know, 20 years of your life have been wrapped around like weight loss to actually take, be able to take a step back, even though, you know, that can still be a goal, right? Like that's, there's no, yeah there's no shame in that. I think that a lot of people do put a lot of shame in there and saying, well, you shouldn't be doing things to lose weight. You can, that's totally fine. But when we can focus on the things that are, are in our control, like, the habits that we're forming or focus on the other really important things about how we're feeling that are actually going to improve our quality of life as well those are you know those are those people say non-scale victories and it's like yes shouldn't we be able to have just victories without it being any sort of th- thought about the scale because when we say non-scale victories it still sounds like the scale is still the most important thing
0: yeah and I, and I do you I-
1: Wasn't that the most amazing story? I am blown away by all of the people that I talk to and just how resilient so many of you are in dealing with awful things that happen in your life, like Rachel and her child, but still have the motivation and drive to improve your PCOS symptoms so that you can be there for your family and friends and thrive with your PCOS. So at the start I got you to think about three things. I asked you how to ask yourself how do I want to feel this time next year? Then what realistically is going to help me get to that place? Is it some more of the drastic diets you've tried in the past like Rachel? Or did they just give you a quick fix that wasn't sustained? And then thirdly What could you do? So go back to that second one. Be really realistic what's going to help you, right? And then thirdly, what's one small towards move that you can make today or tomorrow to help you get to that goal? And if you want to follow in Rachel's footsteps and try a program that's actually going to help you make sustainable changes. And in a way that's actually going to improve other symptoms like your energy levels and your uh, your fatigue and your hunger not make you absolutely starving but actually make you feel full for the whole day and not make you think about food all the time and crave sugar then come and try, try Ovi Ovi is our app based program that makes it really affordable to find your drivers of PCOS and then match you with the right treatment plan plus provide all of those resources that you need to actually implement the changes like so many workouts we've got pilates workouts in there yoga workouts postpartum and prenatal Uh, we've got body weight and weighted exercises as well so you can do this at the gym you can do it at home you can do it wherever you want to we've even got short ones with no uh, equipment that you can do in your hotel room or when you're away on vacation plus all of the recipes that you can try for implementing the food changes that now are going to suit your PCOS but also in a way that allows flexibility within that. As you heard Rachel talk about, there's, it's really important to us that you have that 20% of your food that's not what is necessarily the best choice for PCOS, but, allows, but is not going to impact you getting the results and allows you to actually live your life and enjoy things, enjoy social occasions and going out with friends and family. So if you want to know more then head to ov.io and jump in and do the questionnaire and find out first what's driving your PCOS. The links are in the show notes below. Thanks so much for listening. Now stand by for our disclaimer. The information contained in this podcast has been prepared for the purpose of providing information, including about the PCOS Nutritionist products and services, and is designed to support clients' overall wellness. It is not intended to provide medical advice or designed to rectify, treat, or cure any specific medical conditions or diseases. Nothing stated or shared in our podcast is intended to be and must not be taken to be medical advice. Please seek the advice of professionals as appropriate regarding the evaluation of any specific information, opinion, advice or content contained in our podcast.